Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. And here we are in Mark chapter 10. Uh, We've been working our way through the gospel of Mark for uh, over five months now. And as we get towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, we're getting to the narratives where Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, crucified. Spoiler alert, he rises from the dead three days later. Um, And the the narrative will sort of pick up more, and really it'll become more of that, a story that will follow. But there's been a central theme that we have been employing here through the Gospel of Mark, and it's where we get our series title from. So the, the title of our study here in the Gospel of Mark is simply The Way. And what we're seeking to do here in this gospel, what we've been doing, is uh, seeking to learn from the life and the way of Jesus here in the gospel of Mark. As you may know, the New Testament of the Bible starts with five books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all biographies on the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, They are reliable uh, first century sources that give us an accurate eyewitness account of what was happening in the life of Jesus. And they, they beautifully complement each other when you read them together while also remaining to their own unique you know, method of communication and form. So they're distinct in their flavor, but they're complementary in their storytelling. The Gospel of Mark is quickly becoming my favorite out of all of them. Maybe it's just been because of how much time we've been spending studying it. But the Gospel of Mark has a special focus on how Jesus lived his life, like what he was like. If you're looking for the age-old question to WWJD, look no further than the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is all about the way of Jesus. As we see here in this passage, there's certainly plenty in terms of what Jesus had to say. A lot of red letters even in the section we just read. But the big emphasis in the Gospel of Mark is the way Jesus lived. And that's really what we're after uh, as Christians. Uh, We want to follow the way of Jesus. And if you are not a Christian and you're here today, I want to encourage that this is what you should be after as well. If you want to get to know the Christian faith, look no further than Jesus, who is the very essence of it. Be careful when you're just trying to understand Christianity from looking at a Christian. Hopefully, it's, an, it's somewhat of a resemblance of what the faith is meant to be, and the truth is. But the best source uh, of, of truth in terms of what the Christian faith is all about is Jesus himself. Amen? And so that's what we're here for. We're not a bunch of people who are like, hey, look at us. We're holy people. No, we're a bunch of people who are just like, wow, Jesus is amazing. And we need him. And he's worked in our lives. And he's died for our sin And so let's learn about him so that we can further follow in his way. And so that's what the Gospel of Mark's been all about. Uh, Each week, as we get to a different section, we're just kind of going through this Gospel chunk by chunk. And one of the best things about doing this is we really allow the Holy Spirit to steer our study. Rather than me being like, let's take five months to talk about whatever I think we should talk about. When you study the Bible expositionally like this, you allow God's word to inform our study and understanding. It leads us to talk about things in church that we wouldn't be privy to otherwise. Does that make sense? Like when would I just say, hey, this morning I want to talk about how Jesus feels about children and divorce. Let's get into this study. You know, that that isn't naturally the norm. And so we have a real gift for us today, allowing God's word to lead us here. Each week, as, we, as I said, as we're studying the Gospel of Mark, 
We're looking at a different aspect of the way of Jesus. We're trying to sort of pin the verses we're looking at together into a big idea. And if there was one central aspect of the way of Jesus in this passage, you can write this down. All right. So this morning, as we go back through these verses that Mrs. Lynn Doyle read to us, we see the way Jesus revealed. That's what we're going to talk about here today. Mark 10, 1 through 16 has a lot to say. It has a lot about Jesus to, to show us. But if there's one theme that I think we can take away from this section, it's the way Jesus revealed. The way he revealed. Now, there's a lot of single words that you could use to define the life of Jesus. A lot of one-word summaries. But I don't know if you can get closer than the fact that Jesus revealed a lot of important things to us. What a great word to summarize Jesus' life. It was a life of revelation. Much of what Jesus did was the work of revealing. Now, if we're going to use that word, we should start by defining it. So what do we mean from a biblical understanding when we say that Jesus revealed? Well, to reveal is simply to uncover truth that's previously unknown or partially seen. The word for reveal in in the scripture, it comes from a, a picture of an artist who uh, has sculpted some kind of statue or work of art, and that, that piece of art hasn't yet been revealed or, or shown to the public yet. And so they have a big event where you come to the art show, and there's usually some kind of cloak or some kind of veil over the art. And to unveil or to reveal is to remove or uncover or unveil that garment to disclose and for, for eyes to be open to see the work of art. Uh, this is something that God does in our lives as well. There, there are, whether you realize this or not, there are truths that you don't see right now. There are truths that we all would never see without God's work of revelation, okay? Without God's work to unveil and uncover what's previously unknown, or how many of us live here a lot, or is just partially seen? You ever been lost because it's not that you saw no truth, but you just saw enough truth to miss the whole truth? Does that make sense? You just kind of saw enough of it to to, to get a flawed idea. And so the work of Revelation opens your eyes to see the whole truth, gives you a step back. Now, this is, I think, a, again, a one-word summary of what Jesus was largely about on earth. Jesus did a lot of great things, but not a lot match up to this significant work he did to reveal things to us, things that were previously unknown or partially seen. Let me give you two specific things that Jesus revealed, um, and we'll start with the most important. When Jesus was on earth, and we see it here in the Gospels, first, we need to understand that Jesus revealed his Father. This is the primary work Jesus came to do. The primary uncovering work Jesus came to give humanity is a clear picture of his Father. This is what John chapter 1 verse 18 says. And when I say his father, if you're unsure who Jesus' dad was, it was God the creator himself, God the Father. And the Bible says in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father or in close proximity in relationship with the Father, it says he has declared him. And the word declared there in some translations say Jesus has revealed him. This is how you know what God is like. Um, in, there's, a, there's another passage that's kind of interesting where Jesus is telling his disciples that he's the way to the Father. 
that, that I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come, no one can get to God except through me. And, and one of his disciples, I love Philip, he exclaims with this heart of desire, he says, Lord, show us the Father. We want to see God. We want to see the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father, when you've seen me? You see the idea? Jesus came to give a clear picture and understanding to humanity of what God is like. He comes to reveal himself. Now, some... um, some smart people. I usually say scholars, you know, because that's such a pastoral thing to say. Like, I have all these scholars in my phone that I call. Um, some really smart people have said that this doctrine, we call it the doctrine of revelation, is for us the most important doctrine. Not just that there is a God, but that this God would be willing to make himself known to you or I. C.S. Lewis actually talks a lot about this, uh, follows this train of thought to explain that, that really if, if, if or since there is a God, the only way we could ever know he was who he was or what he was like is if he chose to reveal himself to us. That's the only way we could ever know. He was in debate at his time with a, a famous Russian cosmonaut who was an atheist himself who went outside of the atmosphere and he returned and he said I went up to the heavens and guess what I couldn't find God he wasn't there all right I even did an orbit couldn't find him he wasn't anywhere to be found and C.S. Lewis responds and says you know it's a dangerous thing to assume that if there was a God that, that he could be stumbled upon in your own realm like some island out in the Pacific Ocean I found God and in many ways, what you're doing is you are humanizing God and you're removing his role as creator and sustainer of all of life by placing him within that realm. Is this making any sense? So C.S. Lewis, maybe this will help. He says this. He says, the way we relate to God is, he's like, it's not like the way that um, uh, the person in the first story apor- apartment relates to someone in the second story. Like, I hear God's footsteps. Let me go up there and make sure it's him, you know? And if you're in the first story of a, of a two-story apartment, I'm sorry if you're on that first story. That's the hardest situation to be in there when you've got people above who like to tap dance into the late hours. But uh, th- that's not the way we should think about relating to God. He says the, the better way to think about it is we would relate to God the way that Hamlet would relate to Shakespeare. We've talked about this before. Hamlet is never going to come into some knowledge of Shakespeare because he climbs into the back of the set and sees Shakespeare. Oh, there's Shakespeare. You created me. No, no, he says this. This is genius. C.S. Lewis says the only way that Hamlet, the character, could ever know anything about Shakespeare, the author and the creator, is if Shakespeare chose to write something about himself into the story. Shakespeare, as the author, decides, I'm going to let Hamlet know who I am. I'm going to write something about myself into the story. Here's the good news of God. God has written about himself into the story of life. Isn't that good news? You can know him. You can't know it all. None of us can. We only know in part. One day we will know in full. But there is enough pieces of the puzzle to make out the image. There is enough revelation for every person to conclude that there is a creator God and he has manifested himself most clearly in his son, Jesus, who shows us what God is like. 
There's really two ways to make conclusions about God the Father through your own imagination or through his own revelation. There's two options. There's what you think and what you conclude, or there's what God has revealed. So to wrap this up and move on to the next thing, the Bible says this in Hebrews. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways in the past spoke, rather, sorry, in time past to the fathers by the prophets, a.k.a. God has revealed himself to man through creation, through his word, through his people, He has in these last days that we're in spoken to us most clearly by his son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself has purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see this language? Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. Jesus is the express. Does it get more clear than this? Jesus wasn't just some good man and good teacher. He is the expressed image of God. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. We get this, right? Listen, if we want to know what God is like, we should spend some time exploring Jesus. It's a good thing we should, right? Because we've been doing that for the past five months. Um, And that's what we see. Jesus revealed the Father. Jesus also, write the second thing down, Jesus also revealed his heart. Jesus reveals God to us. We want to know what God is like. Don't don't default to your own imagination. Receive God's revelation through the person of Jesus, which shows you everything you need to know about God. But Jesus also, I love this, and we see this so much in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus reveals his heart. He doesn't just reveal the Father by revealing his actions or his words. But that's one thing you get from Jesus, especially in the Gospels, is you get this this picture of Jesus putting his heart out there for humanity. Jesus doesn't hold his heart back from humanity. Jesus comes to reveal the Father, and and if we're going to know the heart of God, Jesus is going to give us his heart. That's how we'll know the heart of God. And and we're we're actually learning this, uh, most of us. I have been spending the summer reading through a book that's all about this, right? Can I get some head nods? Some of my book clubbers? Okay, I've got a couple of you guys out there. This summer, we've been doing a, a, a book club, a summer book club, uh, through the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. that's based on this precise fact that comes out of Matthew 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, I love this. Not only does he come to reveal the Father, but he comes in full disclosure, not keeping any part of himself back from us. You don't have to be left with speculation about what God's heart is towards you. Isn't that good? You don't have to be left even to your own feelings because we can be there a lot. Like based on my performance this week, I'm not feeling that God's heart is so gentle and lowly toward me. And we can project our heart on God. Jesus comes to reveal the heart of the Father by revealing his own very heart. He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm here to show you what I'm really like so that you can know what God is really like. And that's tying this all together. That is the vision we have here in these verses we read in Mark 10. We see the heart of Jesus on display in this passage. Just like without any reservation, The heart of Jesus on the table, his heart on his sleeve. And we saw three specific things that Jesus is expressing 
his heart for. Write these things down as well. Here in Mark 10, as Jesus is revealing his heart to reveal the heart of God, that's how we know what God's heart is like, we see three things. The first thing Jesus reveals, we saw this, is we see Jesus revealing, we see revealed in this passage, Jesus' heart for people. This isn't a new revelation. In fact, most of Mark covers this topic. It settles it once and for all how Jesus feels about people. He cares about people. He loves people. The way that we see it in this passage is characteristic of Mark's version. It tells us, it's just one verse that gives us this vision, that Jesus arose from there and he came to the region of Judea. So Jesus has been hanging out up in the north side of Israel up in Galilee in that region. But now he, he knows that his time is coming. His days are short. And he, he knows that there's some sense that he's going to be betrayed and crucified. We're going to study that next week. And so he's making his way now down towards Jerusalem. And, and just imagine this. You're Jesus and you know what's coming. You've read Isaiah 53. You're the suffering servant. You know that, that the Messiah must pay for the sins of, the, of God's people with his own blood. You're investing in your disciples, and now you're going to make your journey towards what will be your last visit to any town or any city. And as he's on his way down, as always, multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was custom, it says he taught them. So this is just typical life of Jesus. Jesus is always trending in every city. And so if Jesus shows up, the whole city shows up. And isn't it just beautiful here? Don't you see the heart of Jesus here that he stops what he's doing to care for the people? What Mark shows us about Jesus is that he has the heart of a shepherd towards people. He has the heart of a shepherd that cares for his flock and protects them and wants them close and wants them provided for and values them. This is what Mark reveals, that especially when Jesus sees crowds of people, he doesn't just see like broken, like, sad and doomed humanity. He sees people that he loves, and he's not inconvenienced by the masses, as the disciples tend to be. They're like, Jesus, this is a great multitude and all. We've really been enjoying the work you've been doing with the multitudes. It's just amazing. But Lord, we've got places to be. We've got things to do. Can we send the crowd away? We want some alone time, Jesus, okay? We want, we want a vacation with the boys. Jesus, it's Saturday. Saturday's for the boys, not the multitudes, Jesus, okay? In the Greek, it says that. But. And Jesus is not, is not having any of that. He pauses. His life was not so busy with important things that he couldn't pause to serve people around him. So he stops, and he loves on the multitude. Now, here's the most important thing. As we see Jesus' heart for people as the shepherd, I want you to notice, I want you to note, importantly, how Jesus loves them. What does he do to serve them? We know his heart is for these people, so how does he express that love for them? It was his custom to do what? To teach them. Jesus doesn't just come to the crowds that he loves smiling in love. I love you, right? Just sort of like superficially doing kindness things and being there and being present. All of those can be really significant. But Jesus loves people enough to teach them. That's what he does. He comes teaching. And here's why. And we see this especially in the Gospel of Mark. 
Jesus understood a very important fact about humanity, that number one, humanity's biggest problem is being bound by lies and deception. Humanity's biggest problem is being bound, in our understanding, by lies that don't find their source in God, but in the devil, and by deception. They've been tricked to believe these lies. Jesus knew that was humanity's biggest problem. Therefore, their greatest need, what is humanity's greatest need? To know the truth. (laughs) To be enlightened in the truth. This is how he loves them. He doesn't just come smiling and serving. He goes, okay, I love you guys enough. I'm about to go to the cross. I'm going to teach you what's true. That, that's what it means there. It was his custom to teach them. He's not just speaking kind of like TED Talk, you know, warm, fuzzy messages. Jesus is showing up and he is expounding the truth of God's word to a people that have been led to think all sorts of broken ideas about God and life and how the world works. This is how He loves them. He tells them this in the Gospel of John. Jesus says to those who believed him, he says to them, this this is how Jesus feels about this. He says, if you abide in my word and my teaching, he says, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So even in this, Jesus is making some really important observations. He's assuming that without the word of God, you don't have the truth of God. And without the truth of God, you're bound to lies. He says, you're bound. And and freedom is found through the truth. Jesus loved people enough to want to liberate them fully, not just provide for their material needs. Which is often why the crowds would come to Jesus. Free lunch. We're hungry. He can give us this. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm not just here to feed your stomach. You're going to be hungry tomorrow. I'm trying to feed you something eternal, the truth of God. In large part, one of the main reasons why the people of that age had become bound by lies is the truth of God had been hijacked by false teachers. This was the problem. This is the problem in every generation. In every generation... We pray that God is raising up prophets and voices for truth because in every generation, the enemy works tirelessly to raise up voices of deception, false prophets that bring broken, enslaving ideas to people. And Jesus is an example of this. As he comes into the scene where, man, there was, in that culture, it was so hard to walk with God. What people had created, the the true structures they created. It was nearly impossible to enter the kingdom of God based on the religion of the day. And and Jesus comes to solve the problem of deception with truth. And can I say, like, again, it's no different today. It's no different for the church. There's, There's a reason why the primary ministry of this church will always be the ministry of the word. It will always be the ministry of the word. We need to be in community. We need to be active. We, we need to follow Jesus. But everything in the church, I'm not talking about Sola Church or this church or that church. I'm talking about Jesus' church. Everything in Jesus' church must flow out of the ministry of God's word. As the foundation upon which we build everything on. The foundation upon which everything flows. This is what Paul gave Timothy as his instructions in his day. And see if there's some re- resemblance to our culture. He says, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the sad thing about a lot of deceivers, is they've been deceived. 
And there's something that can happen when you see someone not just as like an enemy of an idea, but maybe a casualty to that idea. That will change your heart towards them. And you go, oh, you've been deceived. And Paul says this is going to be the norm. Deception's going to run rampant, but you must continue in the things you have learned. Maybe your problem today is you have failed to continue in the truth. You were raised in the truth and you were taught the truth, but you have been led into deception. He says, this is going to happen. If we're going to fight this, you've got to continue in the truth and the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, he tells Timothy, you've known the holy scriptures, the source of truth, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus. That's where scripture is going to lead us, to trust in Jesus. And then there's this kind of famous statement that we use a lot to, to uh, define the scripture. Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for you and me in the generation we're in for doctrine, to know what's true, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then notice this. It's in light of this doctrinal idea that Paul challenges the minister. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ... The same Lord Jesus Christ that we read about here in Mark 10, that his custom was to do this and teach the multitudes. Paul says, I charge you before Jesus who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Here's the charge for the church. Preach the word. That's the job. That's the ministry. That's the task. That's the need of the age. Not smarter Christians, not more socially active Christians, not more political Christians, but more biblically saturated Christians who are coming back to the heart of worship, which is rooted in the truth of God's word. Preach the truth of God's word. As much as you have your ear in that podcast and and, and your nose in that book, have your mind be saturated with the truth of God's word in season and out of season. I'm going to say that I think we're in an out of season at this point. That's just my opinion. He says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Notice this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So th- this is not like angry, you know, you know, this Boca white guy preacher up there shouting at everyone. This is Paul. This is Paul whose heart burns for the church. And he's like, you got to be careful. you got to be careful because of itching ears. And Jesus' love for us calls us out of these lies and he brings us into the truth. The, the, the kindest thing that God could do for you is tell you the truth. I mean that. It's the kindest thing he could do. Not withhold you from the truth because he doesn't want to offend you. But to open your eyes to his truth. What better place to be in life than to see the truth as it is? I can't think of a better. In fact, I've suffered a long time seeing things falsely. Here, here's this, by the way, this isn't something new this ministry Jesus is doing. This goes all the way back to the nation of Israel. God is giving them his commandments and he, he says this. Listen to the statutes. This is Deuteronomy 4, 1 and 2. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live. That's his heart. Know the truth so you can live. That's where abundant life is found. 
and go in and possess the land which the Lord, your, Lord God of your fathers is giving you. And then he, he gives them a command. He says, don't add to my words. That's one danger. And don't take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. So the goal is we want to keep the truth of God. We want to preserve the truth of God. That's why Jesus comes into a city and he wants to bring the truth of God because the tendency, as it even says here in Deuteronomy, is either to add to it or to subtract from it. Either way, the, the, the tendency that humanity has is to, is rather than be God's mailmen who deliver his mail, we have a tendency to be his editors. Like, God, I would have said that this way. Or God, I would have added this. Add, God, add a disclaimer, you know? Add this, or, or God, just let's, everything in there is good, but let's subtract that. And, and, and this is the tendency we all face, is to want to add to or subtract from God's word. I think, in large part, the enemy uses these two tendencies to work against each other, too. I've seen this a lot with the, the deconstruction movement, of which I have kind of been on a journey understanding that, walking with Jesus. Where usually what you have is, it starts with some really, la I'll be kind, lazy Christians, that's kind, who add to God's word. They add their assumptions. They, add, they take their interpretations and they treat them as author authoritative. And then you're raised in these cultures that have all these additions to the Bible. And they're not so much taught, they're more caught. Like, this is how God, this is what God really feels about you. And you, and, and you can come out of, and sometimes all it takes is you just step out of that world for a second and you read the Bible and you're like, that's contradicting that. And, and the danger is when you see that there's been all this stuff that's like, it's kind of what the Pharisees would do. They would load heavy burdens on people that God doesn't. And you're just like, ah, just following the Lord. So light and his burden is light, you know? And you're just like, what is this? Why is following Jesus such a drag, right? And you go, oh, because we've made it something it's not. Some, or Proverbs 30 says, don't add to God's words lest he rebuke you. His word is pure. It doesn't need our additions to try to control people. Now, for all of you who are like, amen, the church. There's a foothold that the enemy gets with that person because the, the reaction is then to go, man, I've just got to topple this whole thing. Do you know what I'm saying? So much of what's called, de like, I think there's a healthy way to deconstruct. If deconstruct means you have a faith system and you're going to take out anything that's not trustworthy, that's not aligning with scripture, you should do that. Okay, if that's deconstruction, have at it. Right? And some people have said, in a sense, Jesus encouraged, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That's deconstruction, right? You've been taught to think a certain way, but does it align with what's true? But the tendency is to overreact, and much of what we call deconstruction today is really just demolition. I'm deconstructing. No, you're demolishing. You're, it's destruction is what it is. And, and, and it's kind of like, it reminds me a little bit of um, my first brisket two weeks ago. It was edible, surprisingly, somewhat flavorful as well. I got one, of, I'm trying to join the club, I got like a pellet grill, I was trying to be like a real smoker dad guy, and, and, um, and then like I have friends that don't have pellet grills, and they're like, hey, happy Mother's Day. I'm like, oh, come on, dude, that's messed up. But 
Um, tried out my, now one, I, I don't know if this is true, I've consumed 50 different YouTube videos to try to, you know, provide um, food for my family, a big chunk of meat for my family, like a provider and the hunter-gatherer that I am. And prior to smoking the brisket, you trim the brisket. There's some, some excess fat that you need to trim. And one of the, the biggest mistakes I made is I get, that knife is fun and it's sharp. You got to be careful. And it cuts a lot and you're just like a ninja. And next thing you know, you go from trimming the fat, and if you get trigger happy with that knife, and you just you don't kind of hold back, you end up getting rid, and you get the illustration of some of the best parts of the meat. You get rid of the good meat. In an attempt to trim the fat, you lose the best part of the brisket. Um, it, again, it was my kids loved it. They're like, Dad, you are just such a father. That's what they said to me. You're such a father. And but I feel like in, in our generation today, much of the deconstruction movement is an attempt to do what's necessary, which is trim the excess fat. But in the name of trimming the fat of addition, how much subtraction have we done? And how much of this generation now is longing for truth? And they're going, I don't know where to find it. It's right where you left it. It's in Jesus. Trim the fat, but don't lose. Don't subtract from the truth. This is what Jesus has for us. We see his heart for people, it's to know truth. We also see his heart for marriage. Follow me here. We'll, we'll, we'll be out for brunch, I promise, okay? His heart for marriage. And this, this is going to kind of build upon his idea of teaching the truth. In that culture, there was, there was ideas about marriage that were added to Scripture, and there were certainly concepts about marriage that were subtracted from Scripture, much like the generation we're in today. In Mark 10, we see Jesus' heart for marriage. The Pharisees, as Jesus is teaching, they come and they ask him, here's what they ask him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man, according to God's law, for a man to divorce his wife? This is, Jesus is going to give us his heart for marriage. And they, they asked him this, not because they wanted an honest answer, but because they were trying to trap him and trick him. I get this all the time. People are like, hey, what does Solis believe about marriage? I'm just curious. It's like, oh, you really want to know? Or you're trying to blog about us or something like that. Do you know what I mean? They're trying to trap him. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? He goes, I love that Jesus points to the authority of Scripture. He said, well, what does it say in the Bible? And they said, well, Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, he permits a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now we need to stop here for a second. What is going on here? What is going on in the Bible? Um, both Jesus, in asking this question about Moses' command uh, regarding divorce, and the Pharisees, as they're citing Deuteronomy 24, they're referring to a permissive clause that Moses wrote in the, in the book of Deuteronomy um, that gave biblical grounds for divorce in the case of unrepentant sexual immorality and adultery. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says that when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, here's the key one, because he has found some uncleanness in her, that's the most important part of that verse is, is the, the, the disloyalty and the violation and the betrayal of that covenant. He, and he writes her a certificate of a divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house. Now, this is what the Pharisees are referring to. In, in that culture, there were, divorce was like the hot topic in that day and age. Like, when is divorce acceptable? 
Uh, and it really, in, in the rabbinical schools of thought, it's centered largely around this scripture. And there were two, the, the two most famous ones. One was more popular than others, and we'll see why, because men can really be scumbags. And so, um, don't write that down. But um, you, you had Rabbi Shammai, who had the, the more strict, less popular view of marriage. Usually the, the more strict is less popular. And he interpreted this verse accurately. He's like, the, the biblical grounds to betray your covenant vows, or, or sorry, the biblical grounds for divorce is if your covenant vows have been betrayed through adultery and sec, uh, sexual immorality. Uh, that, was, that was his school of thought. The competing school of thought was from uh, another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel. He had a more lenient, and of course, because it was so much more lenient and open, it was a lot more popular. And I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek, but this was a... a, this was a a horrible low in humanity. Not that we're not at low points today, but, but when you see this culture, what you had was men using the Bible as an instrument of control and cruelty against women. And, and, and their interpretation of this verse was like, they pretty much cut out the second part about uncleanness, and it said, like, whatever you define uncleanness to be. And, and so, like, you know what's actually interesting? I found a translation of this verse that... You shouldn't read this Bible, okay? You know the saying, it's like, what, what translation should I read? It's like, whichever one you are actually going to read. No. Read a good translation. New King James, ESV, NASB, you can use a paraphrase at times. It can be more accurate. But there's a translation. I'm sorry, if you have that Bible, you're welcome here at Solus, and we've got a new Bible for you, okay? But, <laughs> but I just want to show you the danger here of some of these paraphrases. The Living Bible translates Deuteronomy, the same verse we just read. Notice how much smaller the verse gets. Pretty close to subtraction, if you ask me, okay? If a man doesn't like something about his wife, he may write her a letter saying that he has divorced her, give her the letter, and send her away. That's, you know, that's some faithful interpretation right there. So this creates a scenario, get this, where... One of the spouses doesn't like something about the other spouse. Crazy to think, right? And if that's the case, now we're laughing at this, but this is where the, Fer uh, where the Pharisees of that day, they had, taken, they had the same thinking. That's why Matthew's version tells us that when they ask Jesus this question, they ask him this. This is a little bit more detail. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? If there's just anything I don't like, this is their heart towards women and this is their heart towards marriage. You see how far it is from the heart of God. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit more insight into what was going on in that time. There's a commentator, William Barclay, that gives a little bit more understanding of what Rabbi Hillel taught was grounds for divorce according to, he must have been reading the Living Bible, according to Deuteronomy 24.1. He said that in that culture, they said it could mean that if grounds for divorce was if your wife spoiled a dish of food, I just want to say that has never happened in my house, okay? If she, me on the other hand, not a whole other story, but if she spun in the streets, Friday night spinning in the streets, watch out, okay? If she, if she talked to a strange man, it's a hard one when you're married to one, but, and you can't control that. If she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's relations in his hearing, if she was a brawling woman, parentheses, one who is defined as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house, okay? <laughs> Rabbi Akiba, great guy, even went the length of saying that it meant if a man found a woman who was, this is really where this went, 
misogyny at its worst here. If he found a woman who was fairer in his eyes than his wife was. And so this is the culture that they're spun in. This is a culture that doesn't have God's heart for women and doesn't have God's heart for marriage. This is a, this is a culture that has drifted as far as we could imagine towards and from the heart of God. And so they come to Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus, we want to test you. You know, we've got these two modern schools of thought. What is your teaching? What is your heart for marriage? And here's Jesus' response to their comments about the law. He says, it's because of the hardness of your heart. In the first place, the people of Israel, that he wrote this precept to you. But notice what he says, but from the beginning of creation, that's not God's heart. There is a permissive clause in the law for divorce. But hold that verse up together with Malachi, which says that God hates divorce. And I don't need to to spend any time unpacking the direct and indirect effects that a divorce can have on, or has had on all of us in this room. I would wager to say every person in this room has in some way been either directly or indirectly wounded or affected by divorce in some manner, which breaks the heart of God. He hates that. Yeah, there's a clause for divorce, but but in the Bible, the grounds for divorce, they're not celebratory exit doors. They're tragic eject valves when the plane is crashing. And lives are, are, are going to suffer. It's, it's always a sad and broken thing. Look how far you have drifted from the heart of God. And so Jesus, I love this, he brings them back to the heart of God. Whatever you've made marriage to be, he goes, let's go back to the beginning. Because marriage is something God designed, God created. He has a vision for it. And it looks nothing like what you've made it. You've made it this like contract. That's one way. Not, not a covenant, but, but a contract, like the relationship you have with AT&T. You have a contract. And, 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 and as long as they are putting up their end of the bargain, we're finally getting fiber in my neighborhood, okay? And I'll tell you what, I've had a contract with them, and I've almost, how many times have we called to cancel? Three or four times, okay? I'm like, hey, listen, I've been talking to Comcast, all right? And they are fairer in my eyes than you, okay? <laughs> Don't burn my breakfast, okay, uh, AT&T. And... I don't mean to bash. If you work for at and I'm sorry. Okay, But the idea is, in that relationship, it's a contractual relationship. And my needs, listen closely, my needs and what I want are more important than the relationship. In fact, the relationship exists to serve my needs. And the second that my needs aren't being met, I'm out. The second I'm not happy, the second my expectations aren't met, I'm going to go find a new service. And th- this is how our, our culture ha- still treats marriage. Um, According to statistics, this is how the church in America treats marriage. Jesus goes, "What what are you, it's not a contract. He brings it back to the beginning. He goes, no, you're missing what marriage is. And and he goes, if you go back to the beginning, when God made them both male and female, he says, it's for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I want to just take a moment to talk about this. I want to point out that Jesus here, he quotes from Genesis. 
right? Jesus here submits to the authority of Scripture to get an understanding of what marriage is, how it works, and how it's supposed to last. And I just want to say that when it comes to issues of gender, of marriage, of sexuality, Jesus is submitted to Scripture. The Scripture are his authority. And can I just say before you're like, oh my gosh, he submits to someone else's authority on these issues. I'm my own authority. No, you're not. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever your understanding of gender and sexuality and marriages, whatever it's come to be, and I'm talking to both the, the person in here who's like, I'm, I'm 100% in on progressivism, to the person in here who's having a contractual approach to their marriage. Whatever your approach is, the question at the end of the day is, whose authority are you submitting to? Whose ideas are you listening to? Whose, whose perspective are you going to trust? In large part, what our culture has said is that the, the way of Jesus, we love Jesus, we don't like his convictions because they're outdated and they're, they don't match our progressive agenda. And so we're just going to put Jesus over here until we need him. And we're going to submit instead to the smartest people of our generation to tell us what marriage is, to tell us what gender is, to tell us how sexuality works. And one, you know, one of the best questions to ask in those situations is just to go, well, how is it working? I mean, how is that going? Is it looking like Genesis chapter 1, which is this culture of life? Or is it looking like what you have in our culture, which is as a result a culture of death because of a lot of these things? Jesus appeals to, he submits to Scripture. Listen, I follow Jesus. If Jesus submits to Scripture, I'm going to submit to Scripture. Whatever he submits to, we submit to. The word of God is our authority. And Jesus makes a couple key points here about this topic. The first thing that he noted, and we saw this very clearly, is Jesus noted that there are two created genders. He says that, that from the beginning, God made both male and female. This is his idea of marriage. There's male and there's female. In a culture that has blurred the lines of gender distinction and invented genders outright, Jesus, in, I mean, people like, especially it's very popular to be like, I love Jesus. Well, have you read Jesus? You might call him a bigot. Like, you might be like, he's, he's, he's not in touch. I mean, he's here saying that God created intentionally, in a really beautiful display of his person, he created two separate and distinct kinds of people. In other passages, he has a sense of understanding. There's these things called eunuchs, these things, these people. And, and he has a sense of understanding that there's complexity and there's challenges that people face. But as followers of Jesus, there's no conf confusion about God made male and female. And, and he made them different on purpose with their own strengths and weaknesses. Like you get a bunch of men together in one room? Oh my goodness. All that just like unrestrained maleness? It, it, can, it can be crazy. And, and so God looks on at humanity, he sees man alone, he goes, that, that, that's not a good world. It, it is not good for there to, let's make a woman who can come alongside and compliment him. And, and, and both of them together, it's like together they both restrain and release their own strengths and weaknesses. Together, it's this beautiful picture of God himself. And, and we just see this clear in scripture that, that God is not pleased with us blurring the lines between these two. 
And, and we've got to become more equipped in our understanding of these things from God's word because it's, it's a part of the conversations we need to engage with and have. And I think especially how we navigate those conversations, seeing that someone in large part, I, I mean, I, I've made friends all around this city of people that I look at and my heart just breaks for them because they've been deceived into ideology that is just leading them into empty rooms. Uh, even today in... in in some school systems, you have what's taught to young kids. It's called the, the gender-bred man. And the gender-bred man is taught to young kids at a young age for them to form their understanding of gender and sexuality and sexual or, uh, orientation and gender expression. And it's a complete divorcing from God's created intent from the beginning. You remove God and anything goes. It's just up to humanity to say what goes. You have your gender identity, which is in your mind. How do you understand yourself? You have your, your, your gender expression, which is how you act and live and present yourself. And, and that can match your gender identity, it could, or it can just kind of be whatever you feel like for that day. And th I'm telling you, there are, there are, it's, it's, it used to be more like fringe tendencies. That's just becoming more of the norm across the board for some of these ideas. It moves into your attraction, which is who you're sexually attracted to. This is taught to young children so they can understand it on, on their level. And then there's the, your biology, which is what you're assigned from birth. And, and it's just this, and I'm just telling you, I really feel like our generation is being starved for the truth. And it may be a good thing. And I'm praying that what happens is a, is a revival of hunger and desire to know God and to know truth. And maybe it's going to take some of these depths. Maybe it's going to take, listen, some of the church thinning out and going, I just, I'm unwilling to speak the truth. I'm unwilling to stand for truth. For God to really move amongst an honest people. And we as the church, like, we got to remember, we're those that bear the good news. We're not here to bash the world with truth, beat you over your head with it like a club. We're here to bring you the best news of all. Here's the best news of all. It has nothing to do with just what your gender may or not be. The best news of all is that God loves you and he made you. He created you. You're not an accident. You're not just, you're, you're not just some... Some improbable odds that ended up here. There's a God who loves you and knows you and made you. And redemption is found in him. Life is found in him. Jesus is clear about this first distinction. He goes, there's, in the beginning, Jesus, he draws the line. He says, there's a male and there's female. There's things that men can do that women cannot do. There's things that women cannot do that men can do. And it's meant to be a beautiful, complimentary picture of who God is. Now, that complementary picture, uh, it, it gets even better when those two come together in a thing called marriage. This is what marriage is. That's, that's his heart for gender. Then he says, marriage is when a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is marriage. Marriage is not a union between a man and two women, um, a woman and two men. We're talking about something God invented. We can't redefine what God has ordained. This is something God created into the, into the order of creation. Man, marriage is not between a man and a man, a woman and a woman. Whatever we're calling that, it's, not, it's just not what God created. It's not marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And those two, it's, it's such an interesting picture. It's the love of other. It's the love of what's different, which is the hardest kind of love to express, Right? I tend to gravitate towards the same. I tend to gravitate towards what's familiar. But for the love of something different, that's what God created. And those two, they come together, and they're no longer two, but now they're one in an inseparable union 
that God joins together and that man cannot separate. Jesus is like, this is God's heart for marriage. Not a contract, an inseparable union, a covenant between two people that God brings together and man has no business coming into what God has joined together and separating it. Because at the end of the day, marriage is about more than our own needs, isn't it? Marriage, at the end of the day, from Scripture's view, is about so much more than even our love for each other and our relationship. The Bible teaches that marriage is instituted by God to actually be a display of God to the world. To be a signpost. To be a living gospel message to the world. To display, and this is something unique that, that Paul says, that through marriage and a husband and wife in covenant for life, they exist to give to the world a picture of the covenant faithfulness of God. That's what marriage exists to do. How many of us know that the covenant faithfulness of God is not conditioned on our, our performance? It's not conditioned upon our, you know, our good hair days. Because sometimes, spiritually speaking, we have bad hair days. Sometimes we wake up, we don't want to look in that mirror. Sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves weeks to months to years on end in spiritual ruts to where the, the only conclusion is, God's nowhere near where I am, and he's, he must have already given up on me. He's waiting for me to climb back to him. But no, the picture of the covenant love of God in Scripture is that of, of a father running to his son, never willing to break covenant, no matter what the person has done. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Like, whether you like it or not, God's sticking with you to the end. It's just, it's just he's, not gonna, he's not going to betray his end of the bargain. He's just faithful in covenantal love. And, and that's what marriage exists to do. Um, marriage is this picture where we go, we, we have some bad hair days in marriage. Sometimes we're not on our A game. This thing's locked in and we're not trying as hard, unfortunately, sometimes. And, you know, when we were dating, it was like, you only saw my best hair day. My best foot was always forward. But now you live with me. And I'm a mess, okay? Both physically and spiritually, okay? And so now covenantal love looks like this. We're, we're going to ride this out as a couple, displaying to the world what God is like. Jesus says, this is the heart of marriage that you're missing. Hey, lastly, it looks like I'll be praying us out today, is Jesus closes with his heart for children. Um, it seems to fall under the same kind of ideas that he's saying. He's, he's bringing the truth to set people free. He brings the truth of marriage to people who have gone far from God's heart for marriage. And, and it just makes sense that the Holy Spirit would inspire that the next thing Jesus shares his heart for is what comes out of marriage, which is children. And we see Jesus' heart for children. Like, by children, I mean, like, there's no, like, uh, you know, double meaning of children. You know, like, oh, we're all God. No, I'm talking about, like, actual little people, Okay. The children kind. Okay, let's move on. It says in verse 13, it says, Then they brought little children, literally, to him, that he might touch them. The word there, brought, actually, it, it's the same word that's used for a parent bringing their child to the temple to be dedicated and blessed. I think next week and maybe the week after, Kyle, we have some baby dedications, child dedications that we're doing, where we're doing what these parents are doing. We're like bringing our children to Jesus. We're like, Lord, we want to we just recognize they belong to you, that he might touch them and bless them. But the disciples, what did they do? Of course, they're just shining stars of examples for us for what not to do. The disciples rebuked those who brought them. Okay, So, so they bring a rebuke. The Bible says that Jesus saw it, and he's greatly displeased. And the word there, greatly displeased, it means indignant. 
It's to be angry at some kind of injustice. You ever felt that way before? Like, I'm angry over what I'm seeing. That's a good emotion to have. That's an emotion God has. Jesus feels this. He's burdened by how the disciples are treating the children. In that culture, we talked about this a few weeks ago. In that culture, children were at the bottom end of the caste system socially. They didn't really have anything to contribute. It was very much that whole, like, better seen and not heard and also not seen that much. That was kind of the culture. And they were seen as an inconvenience and an interruption. But Jesus says, let the little children, let them come to me and don't forbid them. And then he elevates them and says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is really beautiful. Jesus, um, in a culture that sees children as an inconvenience, he values them. Jesus values children. Okay? Um, he, he doesn't see them as a distraction or, or, or as a substitute to something else more important. Jesus agrees with the psalmist in Psalm 127 that says, Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of, the, of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of him. Notice it doesn't say, Behold, children are a burden from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a, is a curse and an inconvenience. This is how... I've talked to people that have thought about children this way. Ch children, I, we want to have kids, but they're, they're kind of going to get in the way of some of the important things that I... What can, be, what can be... Give me an understanding of what is more important than significant than spending your life to nurture and care for someone else's. To develop someone, to be a light in a dark world. What's more what is more of a blessing from God than being entrusted with the stewardship of children? It's nothing second to that. Not an inconvenience. Jesus values children. They're a blessing from God. It's, it's one of the main reasons he put Adam and Eve together. He's like, good, busy. Make a bunch of them. Be fruitful. Multiply, all right? Get at it. Fill the world with God-fearing, wonder-filled children. Jesus values them. I love this, too. He also wants to bless them. As, as, as the people are, these parents are bringing their children to Jesus, Jesus is like, no, let them come to me. And, and the next verse tells us he wants to bless them. He takes them up. I just love the picture of Jesus here. He takes them up in his arms. He lays his hands on them and he blesses them. Isn't that so pretty? I love that. Jesus is blessing these children. So beautiful. Um, Jesus wants to bless our children. The enemy wants to destroy our children. There's one who wants them for the right things. There's one who wants them for the wrong things. And the job of every parent is to be like these parents that say, get out of my way. I need to get my kids to Jesus. I need to, whatever it takes, there's a calling in Scripture. There's a, there's a responsibility placed upon parents. Your number one responsibility is to get your children to Jesus. It is to live a life in such a way, to rear them in such a way that they're blessed by Jesus. Not just blessed materially, not just blessed academically and socially. Those are all important aspects of a healthy individual. But the goal of parenting is to bring our kids to Jesus that he might Touch them. This is like my prayer. Like, Jesus, even if we're crawling past the finish line, I just pray that you would touch my children and bless them. That you would get to their hearts. 
that they would know you, whatever. And God, use me. I'm so broken. I'm so inconsistent. I sometimes, I, I'm, I'm imperfect and I have a temper even, God. I'm, I'm so not who I know I could be. But would you use me in any way possible so that you could touch my children? This is the command, can I say this, to fathers in Ephesians 6. The Bible says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't model a Christianity that, that leads them to be angry with God and angry and bitter towards what you've projected, but train them up in the training and admonition of the, of the Lord. We're sending missionaries all across the world, and the most unreached, unengaged mission field today is the Christian home. The Bible says this, that, that if a man in the church, he's all about everything except for caring for his household, the Bible says he's worse than an unbeliever. That, that's, listen, you're pro, it's not an inconvenience, it's not a setback, it's, it is the most glorious and beautiful and eternal calling you could ever receive to invest into your children, to reproduce those that are going to be disciples for the name of Jesus. Jesus, lastly, he says, you should, you know, I love kids, and he elevates them. This is where we'll close. He says, in fact, I don't just love them and bless them. He tells the disciples, you should be like them. That's what he says. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom as a little child is by no means going to enter it. I love this. He's like, yeah, children are, are, they're not good for nothing. They're valuable. They're, they're worth all your time, energy, and investment. And they're even worth learning from. That's, I think that's something that surprised me a ton as a parent. Like, I thought it was like, I'm the parent with life experience, and you're the young child here to learn. Sit at my feet, okay? And I'm here to download to you. Now, there's certainly a big part of that training. But some of the most significant, significant lessons I've learned in life is from my kids how they approach life, the childlike wonder of a child. We just got back from a little family vacation. I just can't help but think about just how, how there's just not a care. In, like, I struggle to turn my brain off, you know what I'm saying, and enjoy being with my, my kids. They're not worried about cultural events. They're not like, Dad, I want to swim in the pool, but have you just seen what's going on in the White House lately? I just don't know if I can. <laughs> They're just like, whoa, water slide 20th time. Penny, we would be sitting there. It's like, where's Penny? We'd look out. She would, giant pool. She's just floating in the pool in the pool noodle by herself. She just like bobs over to other families like, hey guys, what's up? <laughs> Vacation, you know, mode activated for Penny. And you just look at that. And Jesus is like, Jesus goes, that's what adults should be like. Um, I'll close with this great quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. Dad, do that again. I just did it 40 times, but you got to do it 41 times. And then again. They always say, do it again, but the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people, look at this. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. This is beautiful. G.K. Chesterton says, It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he is the eternal appetite of infancy. Listen, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Jesus says, let's be like children before our God. And I don't know if there's a better way to get closer to the heart of God than coming to him as his own child. Amen.